Thank you for joining us as we walk with God. This is Brenda McCord. Walt and I are thankful for this opportunity to participate with the Awakening in America, an outreach of the Himmelreich Memorial Christian Library. Welcome, friends. You know, in this season of Walk with God, Walt and I are teaching from the book of Esther. And while we do not know exactly who wrote this book, the internal evidence points to a Jewish author who had specific knowledge of the customs in Persia, as well as the setting for this story in the capital city of Susa. It is an amazing story as it unfolds, and we are seeing that as we are walking through these opening chapters. Another theme that we want to point out this week is to note feasting. You know, chapter one opened with three different feasts. In verse three, the king gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants during a six-month period. And then after that 180 days, the king hosted a great seven-day feast while Queen Vashti entertained the women at a separate banquet. You know, Queen Vashti refused to parade her beauty before the king and his guests. And therefore, in chapter one, we saw this, she was removed from the throne. And now in chapter two, the most beautiful virgins have been gathered from all over the provinces of the Persian Empire, and the king is going to select his beautiful new queen, and he chooses Esther. In verse 18, we're told, then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and servants. Another feast, another banquet. Well, let's open up to chapter 2 and begin in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had made known her, had not made known, I'm sorry, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Apparently, the virgins were part of this procession and the banquet held in honor of the new queen. The king wanted all to see the beauty of Queen Esther. And we note, for over one year, Esther had not revealed to anyone that she was Jewish. We understand from the story that Esther respected Mordecai. She obeyed him. She was an obedient, as it were, daughter And she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, even now as the queen of Persia. One theologian notes this thought that I think is important for us to camp on. It appears that Esther's Jewishness was more a fact of birth than an actual religious conviction. And you know, Brenda, with this background, even as you say that, though there's not a lot of religious conviction here, it seems like in this book, God does continue to work behind the scenes to put these two Jewish individuals, Mordecai and Esther, right where he wants them to be. Well, as we continue on in verse 21, it says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Brighton and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. 
And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, and then when this affair was investigated and found to be so, the, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now here the plot thickens. Evidently, Mordecai has received an appointment to a government position as a magistrate or a judge because of Esther's influence. And he's in the king's gate where the people settled legal matters in the capital. Now, the importance of a gate is found all throughout scriptures. One of the passages that, that helps show this and so show some light on this is the book of Ruth, chapter 4, where they go to the, the gate, and they're the elders of, of this town of Bethlehem. They're going to be doing something with a land transaction, and it has to be an important decision of a land transaction. It has to be testified there in the gate. But also, if there's a plot to assassinate the king, and these two of the king's eunuchs, they're angry for some reason. Remember, this this is a place where the king is is to be protected from through his gate and these two eunuchs are supposed to be two of his most trustworthy individuals yeah and i did a little bit of background research walt you know eunuchs um, were um, they were present all over a king's palace um, through you know years very a lot of different dynasties a lot of different kingdoms but they they often were uh, as we we pointed out in chapter one, they were in charge of the the female, the harem, um, because they were eunuchs. They were, but they have all these different assignments. They're in the courtroom close to the king, and these particular two eunuchs are at the king's gate. Yeah, and and they would be almost like in, in the United States, we call them secret service agents for the president, right, protecting right. They're very well thought of. They're they, they've been vetted very thoroughly but these two guys have some anger inside of them and they've decided we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna do away with the king maybe it was because of the 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 military defeats to the greeks and and the spartans maybe there was a lot of um just uncertainty going around but these two guys are ready to to make a, a move and mordecai learns about it he tells Queen Esther, and then Queen Esther repeats that to the king, and they're found, and both men were hanged. Yeah, and you know, it's just interesting. They, uh, some of the other reading I was doing, they, we have no idea kind of why these two eunuchs were upset. It's, it hasn't been ever uncovered, but they were to be trusted individuals. And, and like you said, Walt, they were well vetted. Well, you know, the palace intrigue is going to continue to grow. As we've now finished chapter two, we want to move into chapter three. This intrigue is all very real, and it makes perfect sense. You know, there are sinful people in this story, and it's quite evident as we begin to introduce the villain, and his name is Haman. So in chapter three, we begin... After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, who advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. It's interesting, Walt, because 
there it, it's repeated over and over again king's gate king's gate king's gate you get the idea that's that this is the flow of traffic you know people who are coming through the king's gate first of all they have permission they've got um, the position within the king's court to have that access the fact that it is actually called the king's gate and once again we see after these things remember we saw that back in chapter two after these things so this is a real life story that's unfolding before us. And I just I just want to pause right here while you and I were talking about as we peel these people back and we look at the phrases and we consider what's happening in this story. So often we don't think about it being real, right? We we don't we neglect the fact that this is a real life story. Yeah, and even as we did some of the background reading about the Persian court, it, this makes perfect sense. It's not like, oh, how could this have happened? No, there was always intrigue going on. There were there were always um, heroes and villains. There were there were people constantly vying for this throne. As a matter of fact, in just a few years, this king will be uh, removed from the throne because of a palace coup, and and because of that, that those defeats to the Spartans and to the Greeks. Um, there were a lot of people mad at him, and so th- th- this makes perfect historical sense as we read through the Persian Chronicles and the records that are set up on these. Yeah, so once again, we know that God's Word is giving us uh, a taste of history, giving us a look, a glimpse at our sinful hearts as people. Bohemian was promoted by the king. He's now second man in the land, and he was quite pleased to have all the king's servants bow down and pay homage to him as he went in and out of the king's gate. And the king, in fact, had even commanded that Haman was to be honored by all the king's servants. However, Mordecai, we are told in specifically here in verse 2, he saw this as an act of worship, and he did not bow down or pay homage. And I I have to pause right here. I've got a a head to heart I want to share. How do we handle our position in life? Especially if we get a promotion, especially if, you know, we're, as it were, lifted up, right? Esther was crowned queen of Persia. Mordecai held an important government position. Now the king promoted Haman to a position above all the other court officials. And so we see three of our characters here that now hold positions. And so I asked this question, and I want us to look around at your position in life. Who is in a more prominent or powerful position than what you are? Like if you're looking at your world, where you're at, who do you, um, you know, who has the power over you? Who is more prominent than you in their position? But then I want us to step back. Who is in a lesser place than you? How do you treat others? How do you expect others to treat you? You know, it's so easy to let power and position go to our heads. 
but rather God's word teaches us we should show respect to one another. It is our goal to show kindness, to love one another. And I love this verse here in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Oh, that we would choose to walk in humility. And you know, as the story continues, Mordecai as a Jewish man was not going to bow before Haman. I remember a hundred years earlier, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there in Babylon, they would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar. And because of this, they were thrown in a fiery furnace and God preserved them. Well, God is going to also preserve Mordecai. So verse three continues of chapter three, then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And and hear that story of, of these king's servants challenging him. And then they go to Haman and they say, this guy's not doing this because he's a Jew. And with this, Haman starts to think, I'm going to get this guy, but I'm going to get more than just this guy. As we continue in verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He didn't want to just get Mordecai. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And even as we get this, this whole idea that he doesn't want to just get Mordecai, instead, Haman's looking for a way to destroy all these people. If there's any people like that, that that are are not going to bow to me, I want to get rid of all of them. And as he does this, he unwittingly becomes an opponent to Queen Esther and her people. He doesn't know Esther's a Jew. One last historical note that's so important here. Haman was an Agagite, and even as they, they talk, here is his dad, and he was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. These were longtime enemies of the Jewish people, which means that Haman was a descendant from Esau, Jacob's brother. And God had told King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, wipe them out in 1 Samuel 15, and Saul had incomplete obedience. I want to take you to that passage. Because the Lord sent me to anoint you king. That's what Samuel's saying. And listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the armies of heaven. I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote uh, to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, any of them. But kill them, man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel and donkey. And even as we hear that, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so um, harsh. But this nation is has been more than a thorn in the flesh. This nation has been a, a, a sworn enemy. And as Saul defeats the Amalekites, unfortunately, he took Agag. This is for verse 18 of First Samuel 15. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He kept him, and then he spared the best of his animals. And when Samuel hears about this, the word of the Lord came to him, and God said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And all of that to say, Saul failed to obey the Lord's commandments. He partially obeyed. And even as we were talking about this, this partial obedience, his disobedience led to the loss of his kingdom. His kingdom is now going to be taken away and given to to David. But even more, going forward 500 years, now in Esther's time, there's the threat of the annihilation for all the Jews. 
And that reminds us of a, of a head to heart. When God calls us to obedience, um, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we're not exactly sure all of why this is happening, we need to obey him. We need to obey exactly what he told us because we don't see those ripples of our disobedience. And they can extend, in this case, hundreds of years. That can be positive, positive ripples as we obey God and as we see his blessing and the blessing on our children's children. But they can be terribly negative. And all of this story revolves around incomplete obedience of King Saul, not wiping out the Amalekites, and now one of their descendants is getting ready to wipe out Israel. And that should remind us, God wants us to obey with complete obedience and trust him for whatever then comes about in the future. Yeah, and no matter how hard or how difficult it is, but to listen and to obey. And, and you know, even as as we plant that seed today in today's lesson, well, we're, we're going to see that in the coming weeks as we work our way through the rest of this book. But as we get ready to close our time with you today, you know, Walt and I, we want to we want to as individuals, but we also want to invite you as our listeners to be people. Would we be people who listen to the Lord through his written word, through prayer? You know, sometimes uh, we say when we're praying, oh, it just seems like God is silent. I can't hear him. Well, sometimes God wants us to keep coming back. He wants us to sit with him in the quiet, in the silence. And we say we have three great resources. We have the people of God that want to speak into our life. We have the Word of God that tells us the truth. And then we have the Holy Spirit of God that speaks into us and, and, and empowers the Word and helps us. And the, what does it look like for us to, to daily be, be trusting in those three resources that God gives us and listening carefully? And let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, It is our prayer, it is our desire that each listener, that Walt and I as well, would be completely obedient to the Lord, that when we sense that you're calling us to walk in a certain specific way, to um, trust you because you are sovereign, you are omniscient, you have a plan and a purpose, and it has been ordained from the beginning of time, Lord, we know that you know best Help us to walk hand in hand with you in complete obedience and to trust and obey. Until we come together again, friends, may each of us continue to walk with God. Thank you for joining us as we walk with God. This is Brenda McCord. Walt and I are thankful for this opportunity to participate with the Awakening in America and outreach of the Himmelreich Memorial Christian Library.